0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Three times. Again, I already said good morning, so I'm not going to say it again. Don't ask. (laughs) Um, So, missions prayer this morning. Who are we praying for consistently? Jeff. 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 No update on Jeff. Uh, It's the same information. We we still know who has Jeff in captivity. Um, Again, he was kidnapped um, from his home in 2016 in Mali. Violently kidnapped. Uh, The two guards at his house were killed, shot, and killed. Um, And they took him. And the last time that his neighbors saw him, he was driving north towards the Niger border. So they really don't know what happened. They found out who has him. Uh, It is different than the person who kidnapped him, which is a good thing because the guy who kidnapped him is super bad. Uh, Whereas the guy who uh, has him now is a little bad. But who is good in the sight of the Lord, right? So, you know, who's to say? Uh, Yeah, so pray for that gentleman. I forget his name. I'm sorry. Um, I I can get that for you. Uh, It might be on the sheet outside. Look at the prayer map. Double check the prayer map. I'll give you a reason to double check. No, that's okay. Thank you, though, Uh, because I want everybody else to look at it. Go look at the prayer map. Um, So this morning we are going to pray for Tonga. Does anybody know what's going on with Tonga? Yeah, that's awesome, because here's the reason. I was so frustrated when I was reading the news about Tonga. Because every time they mentioned Tonga, they focused on the west coast of the United States. Right? That was the look I gave. I was like, what? They were, they were so focused on like, oh, well, we had tsunami warnings on the west coast, and they're over now. Tonga got hit by a tsunami. So just, again, as we're talking about news and reading the news, just be careful with reading the news. If you hear a little tidbit of information, try to dive in a little bit and see if the Lord would have you pray for something for that nation or those people. Don't just take it and be like, oh, too bad for Tonga. Eh, United States politics, you know, and just keep rolling with whatever else you're reading. Stop and pray. This is what this is about, this missions-focused prayer in the morning, is to bring attention to our minds so that we can press in just a little bit for something that's going on in the world. We need to be world-minded, not worldly-minded, world-minded Christians to focus on what God wants to see in redeeming every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay, so Tonga had a tsunami. Not, I, I couldn't find a lot of information. I don't think anyone died. I'm not sure of that, but I don't think anybody died. But it's, it's pretty devastating as far as infrastructure and economy. And so we're just going to pray that they would be able to kind of build, rebuild infrastructure and, and support their economy a little bit better because Tonga is already a poorer nation. If you don't know, Tonga is an, uh, an island nation in the South Pacific. So we're going to pray for Jeff, quick prayer, and then I'm going to pray for Tonga as well. Lord, thank you for our brother in chains, Jeff. God bless him. Fill him. Give him the exact words to speak at the exact moment to his captors so that their hearts would be haunted by your love, that they would not be able to forget these words, these scriptures, these songs that Jeff has been speaking and singing. So God bless him. We stand with him in Jesus' name. (coughs) Excuse me. And, Lord, we also pray for Tonga. God, as, as the, the, a tsunami has hit the island recently, God, and, and caused some pretty heavy devastation on their infrastructure, God, we pray that you would be involved, give the leaders wisdom on rebuilding infrastructure, on how to support the economy. And those whose shops have been destroyed or who have lost their inventory, God, whatever the, the situation is, we pray, God, for, for just practical living purposes, that they would be blessed and helped. God, I pray that the church would rise up, God, even in their need and give give to their communities, help in whatever way they can, and that they would represent the gospel to people around them, that they would pray for each other and stand with each other to support each other as well. So God, bless the nation of Tonga. I pray for wisdom and discernment. God, in all the organization that's going to be happening with the different uh, groups that are going to help Red Cross and whatever other organizations that exist, God, I pray that your spirit would descend on that nation, that your will would be done in that country. Bless the leader God, I pray that he would find you if he doesn't know. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you. Praise the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Speaking of Tonga, Lucas was there. Cornell sent him to Tonga for a little bit. Uh, so you could check in with him. I think he and Ann are doing hospitality this morning, and uh, he could give you some details on life in Tonga. Th- Tonga, I think he spent 30 days or something like that there, a couple weeks, anyway. One week, okay, he's looking at me through the window. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Um, today we'll be back in Hebrews chapter 3, so you can turn there. And while you're turning there, let me just say that uh, the immediate future plans, um, that uh, I'll be back here next week and preaching again from Hebrews. And then, Lord willing, uh, Joni and I will uh, go to Israel uh, the following Monday, the 24th, we're planning to, to go over there. It's interesting how God's arranged all this, but um, yeah, so we'll spend about a week uh, touring Israel and then come back on the 1st of February. So Pastor Andy will be filling in uh, for me on the 30th uh, here in the pulpit. So while we're here, in, here we are again in Hebrews chapter 3. And uh, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer is really encouraging the church to enter into the rest that has been provided for us by Jesus Christ. And um, he'll famously say, I think in chapter 4, uh, let us strive to enter into that rest or be diligent to enter rest. Sounds like an oxymoron, but there is this tendency in our flesh to want to do, gain merit with God through our good works, and instead of just living by faith that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and to trust in what he's accomplished for us, Uh, Jesus said, I came to give you life, that is, salvation, and that more abundantly, which is a life lived by grace after salvation. So the author of Hebrews, in chapter 3 particularly, he is um, encouraging the church, and he's challenging those who might not be Christians. So uh, as we begin, let me just open with um, an illustration. I'm going to go out on a limb here, uh, but I think it's a pretty sturdy limb, and I'm going to say that uh, there's one thing that everybody that's listening to me today has done. We've all done this one thing today. Every one of us. I'm pretty confident. Um, Some of you have done it more than others. Some, you know, maybe just briefly, but you've done it. We've all done this one thing today. Uh, It didn't have to happen in the bathroom, by the way. (laughs) So what might that one thing be? All right. <laughs> um, I think it's safe to say that we've all looked in a mirror today. Even if you just like got out of bed late, said it's cold, I, just, I think I'll just go to church. Somewhere probably in the car on the way over, you took a look. <laughs> right? I say that because I believe that's what the author is doing. The writer of Hebrews in this text is using history, the scriptures in the historical record of Israel in the wilderness, and he's holding it up to us as a mirror. Not to see what our face looks like, or are we coordinated, is everything in line? But he's holding it up to our inside, to our spiritual nature. And he's wanting us to evaluate, are you connecting with this? Or is this challenging you? So, as has often been said, the writer is, I believe for the most part, he's writing to comfort those who are afflicted, those who have been saved. And we know this from later on in the text that they, the Christians were becoming persecuted for their faith. They had a Jewish background. But he also speaks to those who might be comfortable, and he's writing to afflict them in a good way, right? So he's comforting the afflicted, and he's afflicting the comfortable, and he's using the scriptures, and he's holding it up as a mirror, and he's saying, where do you relate to this? What are you seeing based on what the text is revealing to us? So as I mentioned last week, uh, he does this... By giving us a history lesson. And then he gives us a lesson from history. So uh, he does that by referring, you'll notice in chapter three that a good portion of this chapter, three or four verses, are dedicated to the author quoting from Psalm 95, verse seven. Let's pick it up there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's quoting 95. 7 through 11. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years or 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." As I mentioned last week, and I'll just restate it because it's helpful to us, is that the wilderness experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament is a picture and a pattern of the Christian life. The wilderness experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament is a picture and a pattern of the Christian life. And by that I mean that there was a mass exodus, literally. We have the book of Exodus that led people out of slavery to the promised land. Canaan was the promised land. The promised land was the country that had been promised to Abraham. For Israel, it was a place. Jesus does exactly the same thing on a spiritual level. He gives a mass exodus for those who have put their faith in Christ, and he leads us through this wilderness called the world on our journey to the promised land, which is heaven. For those people, the promised land was a place. For us, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ, and we experience contentment in life regardless of what's going on around us, because of his love and his faithfulness to us, and the work of his Holy Spirit leading us to believe in him, to repent of our sin and have him be our Lord and Savior. Paul uses the analogy, uh, if I'm saying that correctly, but this idea of using the wilderness experience is not something that's uh, unique to this writer. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul actually does the very same thing. And I'll just read a couple of verses here. In 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul said to the Christians, All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized with Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Application? Application? Right? History lesson, lesson from history. Application, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And then Paul gives his famous verse, which you probably have memorized. I hope you've memorized, or you know it, you're familiar. He said, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, what? Take heed lest he fall which is exactly what this author does. He gives a history lesson, and then he applies the lesson of history to us. So, as I mentioned last week, there are three imperatives in this chapter. Last week we looked at the first, which is consider, verse 1, where he said... uh, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly caller, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So the first imperative is to fix your eyes and set Jesus before you always. The other imperatives are in verse 12 where he says, beware, in verse 13, exhort. So beware or take heed, be watchful. And then also to exhort one another Daily. Okay. (laughs) Got a lot of stuff to go over this morning, and some some of it's pretty interesting. But to get the benefit of what the author is talking about, let's go back and do a history lesson. So, where do we start? Well, he says in verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting, of course, as I said, he's quoting Psalm 95. Well, if you Bible students, you go back to Psalm 95, and if you're curious and you open up Blue Letter Bible or some other uh, lexicon of some form to find out what's the actual author meaning here, David and the Holy Spirit, when he says, rebellion and the day of trial. And what's interesting is you'll see that rebellion, the Hebrew word, is mirabah, And trial is Massa. And if you know your church history or your uh, biblical history, then you go, oh, well, that would be Exodus 17. So let's go back and look at that. This is Israel who has come out of Egypt and They are just uh, on their way in their journey to the promised land, and they've really only been in the wilderness for just a short time, a few days. Um, By the way, um, we come to Exodus 17, Uh, they're in a place called Rephidim, and they don't have any water to drink, they run out of water. And in verse two, it says, therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Actually, those two words contend and tempt are the same, Mirabah and Massah. And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, friends, the unbelief of these people is almost unbelievable, (laughs) if I can say it that way. When you consider what they've come out of for months, Moses was God's servant and God doing through Moses and Aaron just miraculous thing after miraculous thing that was, and and, you know, you read the history and there were many occasions where what happened to the Egyptians did not happen to the Israelites. God clearly showing his favor on his chosen people living in the land. While the Egyptians were struggling with boils and their cattle dying and hell and so many other things, the people who were living in Goshen, God's people weren't experiencing that. There was a time where there was darkness over the land for three days. The people in Goshen didn't experience that. They were living in the light. And then... Obviously, the application of blood, the supernatural salvation, the Egyptians pouring out their spoils on the people. They're leaving filthy rich. There's a baptism through the water. They watched the Red Sea part, and they went through on dry land. Think about that. Water parting, seabed went dry. That was as much a miracle as the water parting. And they go through on dry land. And then the, and now here they are just a few days into their journey. And they're like, they're ready to kill people because they don't have any water. It's like, where's your faith? There's actually a root that's being exposed here of unbelief in the heart of these people. They've already actually done this once. Chapter 16, what shall we drink? Moses comes to the water, people are dying for thirst, they drink, it's bitter, throws in a tree, turns it sweet, they come to Elam, uh, a little oasis, life's good. Then they get hungry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we eat? That sound familiar? Jesus gave instruction on that. What shall we eat? The people ran out of food. They packed a little bit, but not long enough for their extended journey. And so God provided manna. And here they are again. Again, their unbelief is almost unbelievable. Verse 5, and The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders. Also take in your hand your rod which you, with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah in Mirabah because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So this is just a little history lesson that the author is using, and he's holding it up to the mirror of his readers. And he's wanting them to say, Okay, are you relating to this? Well, there's another experience that the author is relating to, uh, is, and that's in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Numbers chapter 13 and 14, and I'll just go through this briefly with you. In Numbers 13, uh, the people actually are about a year into their journey on their way to the promised land. And they actually now come to the borders of the promised land. Uh, And God instructs Moses, as you know, I hope you know, that uh, to send in 12 spies. Search the land. How big are the cities? Are they walled? How big are the people? What's the land look like? Can we live off the land? God said it was a land flowing with milk and honey, meaning it's highly productive, right? And uh, so the 12 spies go in, and uh, as you know, they come back and Craziness, right? But uh, they actually had cut down a cluster of grapes off some grapevines there in the valley of Eshkol. And the grape uh, cluster was so large that uh, they had to tie it to a pole and they put one man on each end of the pole just to carry the grape thing behind them. So you know, it was like, What's for dinner? A grape. <laughs> and they pull one off and the whole family eats a grape. It was, it was that big. Right? It was fascinating. Uh, so there, they tasted and they saw the goodness of God. There was one problem the land also was filled with giants, or there were those who had descended from the Nephilim, from Anak, who were, were very large and imposing people. And so as The 12 spies come back after 40 days of intel. (laughs) They come back and they say, pretty amazing, but. Oh yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Look, here's the grapes, but we can't do it. There's too many. The, the, The walls around the cities are impenetrable, and those who live in the cities are giants. We feel like grasshoppers in their, in their eyes. This is the report of 10 of the 12 spies. Pop quiz. Who are the names of the two spies that were faithful? Yeah, I hear <laughs> Caleb and Joshua, right? Uh, by the way, who is Joshua's mother? He didn't have one. Is Joshua, the son of Nun. There's a little Bible quiz for you there, a little Bible quiz. All right, his father's name was Nun, N-U-N, right, son of Nun. Uh, Anyway, Caleb and Joshua, look at it here, uh, verse 30, (laughs) all right? Chapter 13 of Numbers, verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than us. And they gave the children of Israel bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Caleb and Joshua, guess what they did? They considered. They all faced the same temptations. They all faced the the struggles and the doubts of, and the question of, can we actually do this? Caleb and Joshua saw the same things as the other ten. But the difference with them is that they kept God foremost in their mind. They considered it took discipline and it took effort and it took thought and it took faith. They, they realized, wait a minute, the One who saved us and brought us here is there's nothing impossible with Him. And so they considered, that's our exhortation in Hebrews, they kept considering. They continued by faith. Well, chapter 14, it says, All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Interesting, isn't it? The people went to their tents and they were just, they went into hopelessness and depression and they're weeping. You know, what's interesting is while they're in their tents outside of their camp, big camp, million and a half people, big city, tent city. But while they're weeping in their tents, there's a pillar of fire (laughs) outside indicating God's presence with them. And in the daytime, that pillar of fire turns into a pillar of cloud. (laughs) Indicating God's abiding faithfulness to His people. And they're not considering that. And so they just start crying and they're just hopeless. And it says in verse 2, "...and the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness." Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. But Joshua, the son of Nun, verse 6, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation. The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones." Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Verse 11 through 19, Moses goes into intercession for the people and he he calls out on God and he remembers that God had revealed to him that he's long-suffering, abundant in mercy and forgiving iniquity. And he says, God, please have mercy on us, your people. And God said, all right, I will. But, and here we are, verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit that land. So that is the other history lesson that the author of Hebrews is reminding his readers of. Okay, so we have the event in Exodus 17 and then here a very critical and crucial experience for the people of the land. They got right to the land of rest that God had promised to them, but they did, because of their unbelief, God rejected them permanently and said, you will not enter the land. Now, just as you probably know he actually put that on anybody, that any male that was 20 years and older. You will die in the wilderness. So if you were 19 years old <laughs> at that time, you had promise of actually surviving the wilderness journey. And how interesting God is. He goes, you know, I'm going to give you one year of wandering for every day you spent spying. 40 days? I'll give you 40 years. And in that period of 40 years, all the men 20 years and older would die. So at the end of the 40 years, which is Deuteronomy, they come to the edge of the land, and then Joshua takes those people in. Uh, By the way, the giants were still there. The The walls were still up. Nothing actually changed except that now they were filled with faith in the Holy Spirit. And they accomplished what God had promised them in the first place. So that's our history lesson. Now let's go back to Hebrews and take a lesson from history (laughs) because that's what the author is wanting us to do. After giving the history lesson by quoting Psalm 95, Masa and Mirabah. And then when he mentions the 40 years in verse 9, he's referring to that time in Numbers that we just looked at. Okay? And so we see that the people could not enter in because of unbelief. Now the author says in verse 12, Beware, brethren, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. And by the way, I looked that up. <laughs> departing. And because Joni and I are planning a trip to Israel here, it got me thinking of standing in an airport and you're checking the departure screen. See? And that's literally what it means. It's mean I'm making a willful choice to get on this whatever and go away from. unbelief, there's, there's something that happens at that point where it's like, I want to, and I'm going to intentionally move away from God. Beware, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And our last imperative, but exhort one another daily. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then the author closes out the chapter in these last three, four verses, by asking a series of questions. And he answers each question with a question. The first question, For who, having heard, rebelled? Answer, Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt? What's the point? The point is, everybody had the same opportunity and this equal opportunity and same access and experience. They all did. All those who came out of Egypt. Verse 17. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Answer. Was it not with those who sinned? Whose corpses fell in the wilderness? What's the point? The point is. There were many. Who had equal opportunity. And same experience. But never actually. Entered into God's. Appointed, wrath, uh, appointed rest and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who did not obey and this is answer question and answer there's all kind of tied up in one sentence but it seems like he's uh, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest answer to those who did not obey so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief Okay. This raises the question What's the author doing here? And why is he doing it? And I'll say this I think most of what he's doing here is he's encouraging the church to abide in Christ, to abide in Christ. Keep your eyes fixed in your faith, in your life firmly anchored in His faithfulness and what He's accomplished for you. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we're in a wilderness. Yes, we have doubts and there's fallings and there's backslidings and there's compromises that go on in our life continuously. But are we actually still moving in a long, slow, steady progression in the same direction? That's what the author is encouraging us to consider for ourselves, is that your experience? And, and when he says in verse 14, if we become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, he's not writing to Christians and saying, hey, maybe you can lose your salvation if you screw up long enough and bad enough. He's not saying that. That's not what that verse is indicating. It's saying that we will make it to the end. We will persevere. And perseverance is the evidence of a genuine possession of Christ. But we have to be honest to the text. And we have to take a lesson from history. That there are those who have all the equal opportunity and the same access and experience, but they don't have possession of new life. They have not experienced a regeneration, even though they identify as a Christian. And so we would say they seem to be professing faith, but they don't have real faith. And so to them, the author then is holding up that mirror that I talked about, and he's saying, are you identifying with that? Do you see any correlation in your experience as a Christian? In which camp are you in? Are you a Caleb and a Joshua with your eyes fixed on Jesus and living faithfully in His grace and His goodness toward us based on the Word of God? Or is it something that Maybe needs a little wake up, a little shake up. And so he says, beware. Now, let me just say that, first of all, when he says, beware, and this is my new King James in verse 12, it's the second imperative of this chapter, he could be saying, I think he could easily be saying, be aware, (laughs) take heed, take heed to what, be aware of what? And I go back to our first imperative. Am I cherishing Jesus Christ? Am I considering daily my apostle, the one who has revealed God to me, and my high priest who has represented me before God and has purchased my salvation? He's given me what I could never have or achieved on my own. He has granted me by His a gift of eternal life. My brothers and sisters, we are standing on the edge of a precipice here this morning. And your next step is going to be determined on how are you relating to the gospel, to the truth of Jesus Christ. And the writer is saying, look, all these people take a lesson from history. Their experience with the blood of the Lamb and the baptism and the manna and the supernatural water and on and on it went. And yet, there was a root of unbelief that they never dealt with. So this teaches me that you can be sorry for your sin, you can understand the gospel, you can experience the power of God. You might even have had experience with supernatural giftings working through your life. You can you you pray to God, you might even have answers to prayer. You attend church, you serve faithfully. And you appreciate the Christian community and not be a Christian. That's a sobering word. And that's what the author is holding up to our hearts this morning. Hear me. No, no, don't hear me. Hear Jesus. Matthew 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? We've cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Did you hear what Jesus said? Let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, I knew you once, but you walked away from me. He said, I never knew you. What about Judas? (laughs) Another example. A sobering example. There in the Passover meal in, in the Gospels, it says, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. What did all the 11 do? They all sat up and said, told you, Judas. None of them knew it. It says then the disciples looked at one another and said is it I and they were perplexed about who he spoke about Judas was Jewish Jewish Judas was put together He was he was straight and he was organized in his belt line and everything was in he was he was orderly and he was responsible he's the one that Jesus entrusted with the money and By the way, Jesus had communicated to him at least on two occasions that he knew what was going on, that Judas was stealing. Some of the money, as he was transacting, was sticking to his fingers, and he was privately patting his own pocket. Jesus said to him out loud in front of the group, one of you has a devil. I know that, and you're going to betray me. But the others didn't know that. Jesus actually taught this same principle when he talked about the parable of the sower, right? Some of the seed will fall on stony ground. He who received the seed on stony ground, he said, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. In other words, there's been no regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. There was an experience felt something, identified with, oh yeah, I'm a sinner, I understand the gospel, but there was nothing genuinely happening in their heart. And he says, "Uh, this, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, for when tribulation or persecution, wilderness, arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So I believe that that is... I believe in the perseverance of the saints is what I'm here to tell you. (laughs) And I believe that when the author mentions there in verse 6 and again in verse 14, we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. He's writing to both groups. But he's writing primarily to the group who knows the the Caleb and the Joshuas of the church. And and, And the author is giving them an encouragement. There is a rest that awaits you. Hold on, consider Christ. And at the same time, there is overlap in this exhortation. Beware. Are there areas of unbelief? Stay in fellowship. In other words, exhort one another daily. All right? So I'm just going to close the sermon with a few questions that deserve some consideration. So let's just say it Can a Christian lose their salvation? No, I do not believe you can. We have to balance scriptures like chapter 3, 6 and 14, and we're going to bump into this repeatedly in Hebrews. Hebrews probably provides the greatest opportunity for people to take a side here. Yes, you can. No, you can't. So let's be careful and let's consider equally what other scriptures encourage us with. Um, so when I say that uh, a person, is there something that I can do that would cause me to fall away in the future and to fall short of the promised land of heaven, of heaven, and to reject, willfully get on the plane and depart from Jesus? We live in a day and age right now in the last couple of years, very famous people have come out and have deconstructed their faith. And it's interesting to listen to those people. And I have listened to some of them. And they describe their experience of, man, there was, I felt something that was real. I knew the gospel. There was grace. And they could even tell you all these verses. And they would say, but this doesn't apply to me. I was really saved. But now I don't want to be saved anymore. Yeah, but you know, God answers prayer. Yeah, I know he does, but I don't want to pray anymore. Yeah, but the power of the Holy Spirit is, is great to restore you back to fellowship. Yeah, but I don't want him anymore. I was like, really, what happened? You must not have actually had a deep root in your own life. Well, how can you say that, Pastor Scott? Go to John chapter 6. Let me just show you a couple of verses Go to John chapter 6, 35 to 40. John 6, 35 to 40. So we'll just spend a few minutes just on some Q&A. So the question is, can a question lose salvation? I don't believe so. Because, first of all, my Savior says here in John 36... John six I'm the bread of life who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> what shall we eat? What shall we drink? The Lord's like, you're never going to get hungry. You're never going to get thirsty. He's not talking physically. He's talking about his abiding presence because of your saving faith. But I said to you, let's uh, turn to, let's see, let's go to 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. Now notice this, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him with saving faith may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. It's interesting. So those who argue, Arminianists, who argue that you can lose your salvation will say, well, everlasting refers to a quality of life. I mean, the simple, observable understanding of the word refers to longevity of life. Quality, yes, but longevity, it's eternal, okay? Uh, Everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So in other words, you believe now, the Lord's saying, then you will continue in faith, and there will come a time where I will raise you up. Guess what? I'll get you into the promised land. All right. So your belief is in everlasting life, and even though you die before you get into the promised land, so to speak, the Lord's like, I'll raise you up, and you're going to show up there, and there you're going to be. Uh, John chapter 10, while we're in John, I'll look at another couple verses with you. Um, verse 27 to 29. John 10:27 to 29, my, fo- "My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Never perish." <laughs> Actually, the, the, the structure of the grammar there is very emphatic. Very emphatic. No, you will not ever perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one was able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Sometimes the argument is, okay, nobody can take you out of the hand, but can't you jump out of the hand? (laughs) Well, doesn't, he says, no one can do that, doesn't that include you? (laughs) Okay? And then finally, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll just mention Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Jesus, you also were sealed with the promise, or when you believed the gospel, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit whom you heard when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, or sorry, I'm... Not doing well. I'm quoting this. (laughs) You were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, or the deposit, actually, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory, Ephesians one thirteen and fourteen. So the. Evidence of the Holy Spirit when he came into you at your repentance and faith and he bore witness to your spirit and said, Abba, Father, I know now that I'm a Christian because of what you have done for me and by your grace have called me to yourself and have responded to that by faith. The Holy Spirit comes in, sealed. The guarantee, I'll be back. I'll take you unto myself. We get to taste a measure of rest and contentment here in our relationship with Christ. And it's just a a sampling of that which is to come, but it's guaranteed. Question. Won't people go bonkers if you tell them they have eternal security? I've heard that argument. You're going to give them a get-out-of-jail-free card, total immunity, do whatever you want. The Scripture actually indicates that lesson from history indicates quite the opposite. Those who didn't have genuine saving faith in spite of the experiences rejected and rebelled God to the point where he's like, okay, I'll give you what you want. Those who had faith pursued all with the same troubles and tr- challenges in the wilderness. And so the evidence is quite the opposite. It's not, it's not there's no risk. There's a, there's a new creation inside now. There's new desires There's a love for God and a desire to please Him. There's a regenerating work. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Saul of Tarsus is dead. Paul the Apostle is alive in Christ. New creation, new desires, new life, new love. Is there anything that will keep me from falling away? Is there anything that will keep me then from falling away? Is there anything that will keep me from falling away? Yes, your faith. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, you are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and so what paul peter is teaching us there is that we have the sovereign work of god and he's working harmoniously with your faith that's why paul would write to the philippians he who's begun a good work in you will complete it the day of jesus christ You're kept by the power of God through faith. Through faith in Jesus all the time. Are there evidences today that I will persevere? (laughs) There's a good question. Is there, I mean, since we're talking about perseverance of the saints is the guarantee that you're actually a Christian how do I know that I'll actually get to the end and that I'll finish well will I cross the finish line as a Christian are there evidences of that that I can take stock of today that will encourage me yes there are Christ loving first and foremost and self loathing I don't trust myself anymore. The longer I live in this wilderness and the longer I go on in my faith, I realize I am not a trustworthy individual. My old man still lives within me and he is a monster. An insatiable appetite for all kinds of wickedness. And there's this ongoing struggle and there's warfare that's happening inside of me. Romans 7, right? Self loathing and Christ loving. Think of it this way, just to speak of it in some sort of narrative way. If you're walking to the pearly gates and you're just on your way, (laughs) and somebody stops you and says, Where do you think you're going? Well, I'm going to heaven. Oh, really? Why should you get in? What's your answer? Jesus Christ. I'm standing here, nothing but the blood and the righteousness of Christ that's been given to me. Come on in, man. Enjoy the rest of eternity. Are there other evidences? Love for the Bible. What was once a bunch of gobbledygook. I could not make heads or tails out of it, and I didn't want to, honestly. My friend in the Navy handed me a Bible. It's like, are you kidding me, man? I got weed to smoke. I got, there's a lot, so much going on, I just don't want anything to do with this. And so I try, I get in trouble law will catch up with you sooner or later. And then in my desperation and my sorrow of sin, I'd run and maybe there's something in this book. Ah, I, don't, I don't even know where to start. It's all this ridiculous. New life enters in. Oh my God, it's food. It's nourishing my faith. Can't get enough. Insatiable appetite. I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for Righteousness. Jesus said, you'll be filled. Love for the Bible. Love for others. Love for all others. (laughs) Lordship. Gladly surrender and seek His glory. There's growth. There ought to be some tangible measure of You know what, I'm more confident today in God's faithfulness than I was when I was a newborn babe in Christ. (laughs) Just through the trials and the tribulations and the experiences, I was just talking about this with somebody before, excuse me, before church started. And it is a kind of a glorious thing where you realize, you know what, you step out of the boat, you get out there into no man's land and there's a step of faith and there's, and when it's all said and done, it's like, yeah, he's faithful. He's faithful. I could, maybe I'll do that again. And so there's a growth. There's a a greater likeness. There's fruit that starts to appear in your life. Fruitfulness, love, joy, peace. The the nature of Christ starts to manifest. And 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 there's this tangible realization. These are the evidences that are ours. And it was a real joy for me to list a few of those on my paper here. Because as I'm standing there this morning just praying and trying to get warm by the coal stove, I'm like, this is really cool. I know as I stand here today that I am going to heaven, that I actually will continue because of what he's done for me and what he's continually doing in me through my faith. And so when I kiss this world goodbye or when I step off that precipice, I'm going into the presence of the Lord. Not a doubt in my mind. Because He's real to me today. I've heard His voice. I experience Him. I experience Him in fellowship with you guys. It's so amazing. Exhort one another daily. You have no idea. I'm sure I have no idea. Just, just what happens by coming in the church in, in, the, in the company of spirit-filled, like-minded believers. And you share your life and you get to know each other well enough to know imperfect, oh yeah, but we're all continuing on. And it, it encourages me. Keep going, man. You're going to make it. Now there's the other side of this. And we'll close with these last few questions. But are there evidences of hardening that give a warning that maybe you're not going to make it at the end? Are there ev- is, is, the, is the opposite also true? We've talked about the evidences of, yeah, I mean, as the writer says, the perseverance of the saints means the saints will persevere. Well, how do I know that I'll actually get to the end? Well, we've talked about those. Christ-loving, self-loathing. Well, is the opposite true? Are there evidences, as the writer holds up the mirror, are there evidences of hardening that give a warning that maybe you're not going to make it to the end? Well, I'm going to give you uh, nine of them, and they're not mine. They're John Bunyan's from Pilgrim's Progress. So let me just share what he wrote. First, a forgetfulness of God and a forgetfulness of the fact that one day you're going to meet him. There's a forgetfulness of God and that someday you're going to have to stand before your maker. Second, a gradual loss of private holiness, private prayer, in the curbing of our lusts and sorrow for our sins. In other words, you have heard and you have a a mental agreement. Yeah, I I know I'm not perfect. And there's this gospel thing that promises some stuff. And so, you know, you kind of understand it and you believe it. And there's a joy, right? And you're going along. But then comes time that because there's no root, there's a gradual loss of private holiness and prayer and curbing of the lusts. You close the door in your room, with your phone and Wi-Fi, and maybe there's no conviction anymore, and you find yourself looking at a regular basis. Third, we will find that we begin to avoid the company of what Bunyan calls lively Christians you know what, that church thing, (laughs) I just don't like being in company with those folks. It kind of irritates me like my friend in the Navy. And I had all my reasons, which were absolutely ridiculous. But he, in his faithfulness to God, kept witnessing to me. You see, we shared, uh, we, we slept just opposite each other. I couldn't. I'd just roll over and there he is. <laughs> it's like, eh, I think I'll roll the other way. <laughs> Fourthly, there will be a disinterest in public worship. Oh, you might be at church. You're bored. These are evidences that maybe when you step off there is no resting place for you. Fifthly, you find fault with others. Sixth, there will be association with the godless. <laughs> Seventh will be involved in fleshly lusts in secret. Eighth will begin to play with sin openly. Ooh. And lastly, eventually will reveal to all the sorry condition of our lives. Eventually, Judas showed up in the garden, and everybody went, "You're kidding me." He's so, like, yeah. See, you've honored me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. So, what do I do? And that's where I really love this guy who wrote this book of Hebrews. Because he's encouraging the Christian, and he's calling the ones who maybe are identifying and saying, I need a real experience with Jesus. Well, the Lord's calling to you today. And he's saying, come unto me. That's number one. All you are heavy uh, laborer and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Number two, take my yoke. In other words, surrender. You know, to put a yoke on the neck of an animal, or if you assume yourself putting that yoke on, you have to bend your neck <laughs> to get yourself underneath his Leadership and his sovereignty. Take it upon you. Surrender your life. Let me be your guide. And if you know the the analogy of a yoke, it's it's two animals that are pulling an implement, and they have this one device that's tying them together, but the one who's driving the implement is behind them. They don't actually see him. They just feel his guidance and his pull on the reins, directing them as they're going through the wilderness. Take my yoke upon you. I've been in this wilderness. Been there, done that. Know what it's like. And then thirdly, learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. That is some of the most beautiful words that ever came out of the mouth of our Savior. You will find rest. Your rest is in a person will get us to the place called heaven that's the word of the lord given by the holy spirit who is god and i hope that's encouraged you this morning to trust in the lord with all your heart don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways commit them to him Let's stand and pray. We just give you all the glory, Lord, <laughs> as we know that you are working in everyone in earshot today, that your words are powerful, and the, and the history lesson is indisputable as the author applies it to our situation. We, we see the progression, Lord, of, of what happened then to what happened in David who wrote today to the author who says today, and it's all apart part today. Today, you, we're facing you. We're front-facing you, Lord. We're seeing that you're our high priest. You've represented my sinful condition before the Father, and you've risen for my justification. Lord, we thank you. I pray you to equip your saints to continue on, to love one another, to stay devoted, to keep us considering you constantly. In the challenges of life, Lord, we'll call upon you in prayer and say, okay, here we are. This is a difficult thing. I'm tempted. What do I do? Lord, come and, and, and be part of this moment right now in this part of the day, in my thought life, in and, and the, and the way I want to respond to a situation. Lord, show me how you would handle it. You, Spirit, work in my life. Lord, increase our confidence of your everyday presence with us. I'm with you always. And Lord, as that all happens, and it's happening, I pray our our love and our cherishing of you would just, our worship of you would be full of spirit and truth. And a greater effectiveness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. We're kept by your power through faith. I pray, Lord, for those who are hearing that maybe are connecting to the other list and they're beginning to have some good consideration, an honest consideration of what's going on. Holy Spirit, move on their life, reveal Jesus to them. I pray you would take root. And fruit would appear. First, the fruit of honest praise, of genuine love, of pure joy and salvation. We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.